God's law, the Lord is pleased through Christ to teach us. We turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 12 and Luke chapter 23. I'd like to spend the whole Lord's Day in the Gospel of Luke and in studying the Eighth Commandment, looking at the negative side, what's forbidden this morning, and looking tonight at the positive side, what the Eighth Commandment requires of us. And so I'll read two passages in Luke at this point, and uh, tonight a couple more passages, and we'll turn to the Heidelberg Catechism after we read the Scriptures. Luke chapter 12, I'd like to begin reading at verse 13. Luke 12, at verse 13, we hear the word of the Lord. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he, Jesus, said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Jesus goes on to instruct in that way, and then I like to pick it up at verse 32. At verse 32, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then I'd like to turn to Luke 23 in the Passion or Suffering of Christ here. Luke chapter 23 at verse 32. Luke 23 at verse 32, where we read, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the Christ of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also is written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? 
And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. The sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. In the scripture reading there, I invite you to turn in the Smaller Forms and Prayers book to page 249 as we continue our study of the law of God, coming to the Eighth Commandment, which says you shall not steal. On page 249 in the Forms and Prayers book, you have Lord's Day 42 there, and we'll read the first half of that question and answer 110 this morning. Question 110 says, what does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? And it says, he forbids not only outright theft and robbery, which governing authorities punish, but in God's sight, theft also includes all evil tricks and schemes designed to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measurements of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Father in heaven, to you we come, and we pray that you would come near to us, and that you would minister your law, both to convict us of sin and to guide us in your way of righteousness. And we pray that our Lord Jesus, the true Savior and guardian of his sheep, would be the one, Lord, to visit us by his spirit today, that truly may have an encounter with our Savior to shape us and to make us and to assure us that there is forgiveness. In his name we pray, amen. Well, the boys and the girls, I'm sure, know what it means when the Bible says in the Eighth Commandment, do not steal, do not steal. Because boys and girls often visit the grocery store with their moms, and so they get taught at an early age that they can't just take a, a bag or candy, a candy bar. They can't just take a toy and put it in their pocket and walk out of the store. That would be stealing, mom says. No, that would be stealing. And so they, they learn early on what stealing is. Stealing, stealing comes in many forms. In the Bible, we, we read of some ugly forms of thievery among the church. You think of King Ahab who wanted Naboth's vineyard. And so his wife Jezebel orchestrated the execution of Naboth so that Ahab could go down and take the vineyard, take the field. Or you think of Judas, when the true king of Israel came, Jesus, one of his own disciples, was a thief. And when Mary anointed Jesus' feet with that very costly oil, Judas was angry. Why wasn't this, this oil sold and the money given to the poor? But the gospel of John tells us he wasn't concerned about the poor. He was a thief, and he was in charge of the money box. Thievery is an ugly thing. Thievery does not honor God, and thievery does not show love for one's neighbor. 
And that is the summary of the laws we heard this morning. Love for God and love for neighbor. And so the first half of the Ten Commandments is telling us how to love God. Worship only God, no other gods, first commandment. Second commandment, worship God in God's way, not our own way. Third commandment, love God by honoring his name. Don't take his name in vain. Fourth commandment, remember God's day to keep it set apart for God. And so love God in that way. And then the second table of the law teaches us love for neighbor, to honor father and mother, and then to be concerned about everything in our neighbor's life. The sixth commandment sets a hedge around his life and says, hold his life sacred, don't murder him. And the seventh commandment sets a hedge around his marriage and says, love your neighbor's marriage, don't violate it. And then the eighth commandment sets a hedge around his property and says, hold sacred his belongings and don't take them. And then the ninth commandment holds sacred his reputation and says, don't malign him. God gives us all these laws to lead us in the way of loving God and loving our neighbor. But if we think that this commandment about possessions and belongings is found in the word of God because those belongings are our life, our essence, then this morning we see that Christ transforms the eighth commandment by teaching us people that our life does not consist of the abundance of our possessions. Let's look at the eighth commandment, noting two things this morning. First of all, the sin, the sin of stealing, And then secondly, this morning, the Savior, the Savior and his self-giving. First of all, the sin of stealing. Secondly, the Savior and his self-giving. Well, in Luke chapter 12, where we began our scripture reading, a man cries out to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Sometimes we just blurt out what we're really thinking, don't we? Whatever else was going on, whatever Jesus was doing teaching, this man's got one thing on his mind and he can't get it off his mind. He's very upset. And we sympathize with him, right, because, because he apparently is being robbed by his brother and we don't like to be stolen from. No one likes a thief. They're despised. There's a lot of stealing that goes on in Salem, at least if you are on Nextdoor, uh, the neighbor app thing, because people are always posting videos of people prowling about at night on their driveways and then everyone chimes in and everyone hates the thief on visits to home improvement stores in town multiple employees have told me about the stealing that goes on people just walk out of the store with stuff and it's easy to get upset about thievery right because no one likes to be wronged or violated nobody likes the conniving of it But it's also very easy to be self-righteous about the Eighth Commandment. And and maybe we felt that this morning in reading this command. Well, finally, one I can keep. I don't steal. But Christ drives more deeply, doesn't he? There's a lot of ways we can steal, the Bible makes clear. You can steal by force with a gun or a knife. But we can also steal by trickery and cheating. Catechism speaks of false measurements. Today we might speak of overpricing or false advertising. Maybe we've listed something on Facebook or Craigslist and we didn't tell the whole story. And we sold it with a bit of deception. Maybe we returned something to the store under false pretext. Maybe in our business we've made promises and we haven't fulfilled them. Other forms of hidden theft include pilfering supplies from work because, after all, they won't miss it, or cheating on our taxes because, after all, everyone does it a little bit. 
We can steal by refusing to pay debts or to give back something we've borrowed. Do you know we can even steal by failing to share what God's put in our hands to give to others? If the Lord has given blessing to our life, and he's told us clearly it's that we might be a blessing, and we hoard it, then we're robbing. We're robbing. If we deny those in need, if we, if we can't give any time to a brother or sister in church because we're too absorbed with ourselves, then we're, we're robbing them, right? We're stealing. Sometimes we rob brothers and sisters from afar if we have no concern about their lives. We can also steal not just a person's money, but we can steal their reputation. When we malign their name at work so they don't get a promotion. And then there's the what someone's called the, the commonest form of theft today, the theft of time. We contract to work for a certain number of hours for certain pay, but then maybe we show up late, we leave early, we take longer breaks, we work at half speed, and we rob time. And each one of us knows a multitude of other ways to steal. As the Spirit brings conviction to us, Ecclesiastes 7 says, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Well, there's endless schemes of stealing, aren't there? And then in addition to that, we learn in the Bible that it's not only the action that's wrong, but the desire. The desire too, the the lust for things, the greed. That's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And then on top of all of that, we discover that it's not just about stealing from people, but our worst theft is to rob God. It's to rob God. We rob God of our worship when we don't attend to the worship service. We we rob God sometimes of, of our time when we don't give it in service to the Lord. We rob the Lord when we squander opportunities. The start of a new school season, our new church education season, we could remind ourselves that we stand before doors of opportunity. And the boys and girls could be reminded that that these are a unique moment in time, though it seems to go on for eternity, schooling. In reality, it's oftentimes turns out to be a rather small segment of one's life. And these are the opportunities to learn. Do I apply myself to my schoolwork? Do I give myself to, to learn the scriptures in Sunday school and catechism? In Malachi, God says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. You say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. We rejoice in the generous giving that goes on in the congregation, but we're evaluated not as a whole simply, but also individually. Do I let the offering plate go by week after week? Do I... Just give my spare change? Or do I bring my first fruits, my tithes and offerings to the Lord? What about talents and gifts? The Bible says that the church is the communion of the saints. And so Christ has by his spirit dispensed spiritual gifts to different ones, different gifts, so that they all might serve the body. But now, if I don't use my spiritual gift, if I don't develop my spiritual gifts then I'm robbing the body of what Christ intended to give. See, there's lots of ways of stealing. But why? Why would anybody steal? Well, again, there's lots of reasons for stealing. 
There may be poverty. The Bible mentions a poor man stealing. There, there may be the thrill of stealing. You find out about a young person who comes from a wealthy home. They need nothing and they steal for fun. Sometimes it's jealousy. And a lot of times it's laziness, right? We steal by being lazy. We don't feel like it. But much stealing is simply about wanting more than God has given to us. And that's covetousness. And that's greed. When the man shouts out, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus says, actually, that's not your biggest problem. There's a greater danger than than missing out on the inheritance. There's a greater danger than going through life as one who's been wronged by your brother. There's a greater danger. Man, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. What a great mercy of Jesus. To say, you know, your greatest trouble is not what you think your greatest trouble is. Covetousness. It is a great trouble, isn't it? J.C. Ryle wrote decades ago about covetousness. It was this sin that helped to cast down the angels who fell. They were not content with their first state. They coveted something better. It was this sin that helped deprive Adam and Eve out of par- drive Adam, Adam and Eve out of paradise and bring death into the world. Our first parents were not satisfied with the things which God gave them in Eden. They coveted and so fell. It is a sin which ever since the fall has been the fertile cause of misery and unhappiness upon the earth. Wars, quarrels, strifes, divisions, envyings, disputes, jealousies, hatreds of all sorts, both public and private, may nearly all be traced to this fountainhead. I don't know what happened with this man. But you can imagine if he didn't get his inheritance, that family relations were not good. Unless the word of Christ changed his heart. Last week, the chief financial officer of a large corporation jumped out of a New York skyscraper. And the articles, if you've seen them, suggest that the stock that he managed, his company had plummeted and that he was, that he was listed in a lawsuit alleging that he had artificially inflated the company's stock prices for a pump-and-dump scheme. Well, I, of course, have no idea about the real reason he took his own life or the allegations. But the story reminded me of the cruelty of the devil, the cruelty of the devil, our enemy. And, in connection with this Eighth Commandment, of the reality that countless lives have felt utterly hopeless When money fails, whenever the stock market plunges, there's people who take their lives, who give up, right? Who think that life is over because their life did consist in all they had, they believed. And now if it's gone, then my life is gone. I might as well die. What a sad, sad thing. Last week we read in Proverbs 7 about about immorality, that she has cast down many wounded and all who were slain by her were strong men. Her house is the way to hell. But it strikes me today that something similar could be said of covetousness. 
Covetousness is a hard taskmaster. It's a, it's a slave driver. Those who are owned by covetousness are worked to death or plagued with fear or driven to despair and take their own lives. Covetousness has thrown many people off of bridges and out of skyscrapers. Sin is a terrible friend. The devil is a liar. The pride of life, the lust of the heart, the boasting of what we have and do leaves us entirely helpless. Jesus warns the man, your life, your life doesn't consist of what you own. And yet, not only does he live that way, so many people do. J.C. Ryle writes, it is an awful thought that the character which Jesus brings before us in this parable, talking now about the rich man, excuse me, the rich fool, is far from being uncommon. Thousands in every age of the world have lived continually doing the very things which are here condemned. Remember the rich man, he stores up his well. Take it easy, it's going to go great for you now. Ryle writes, they are laying up treasure upon earth and thinking of nothing but how to increase it. They're continually adding to their hoards as if they were to enjoy them forever and as if there was no death, no judgment, and no world to come. And yet these are the men who are called clever and prudent and wise. These are the men who are commended and flattered and held up to admiration. Truly the Lord seeth not as man seeth. Uh, to be in the bondage of greed and covetousness. What an angry enemy. What a ferocious monster. And we, we say, well, is there any who can deliver? Is there any who can save us from this? And who is it but is speaking? The Lord Jesus. Let's look at the Savior and his self-giving. Secondly, this morning, the Savior and his self-giving. Now, the only way that the Savior appears wonderful to us is if we're really convinced that thievery is sin and that the condemnation of thieves and robbers is real. Now, in Corinth, where Paul had ministered, they were no longer praying, Lord Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Now, now they're just suing the pants off of each other. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, Now therefore it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. And then he says, Do you not know? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. You hear that? Thieves and covetousness, covetous will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not go to heaven. And what shall we do then, brothers and sisters? Can we prove our innocence before God that we have never stolen anything? Can, can, we, can we prove that we've always been perfectly honest? Can we vindicate the claim that we have never squandered any of the time, opportunities, or money that God has given to us? That we've always used it perfectly? Well, no. But the apostle writes more. Thieves and covetous 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Thieves with unclean hands have been washed. Dishonest with crooked hearts have been sanctified. The guilty have been declared righteous. There's a Savior for breakers of the Eighth Commandment. That's the good news this morning. There's a Savior for thieves and robbers and extortioners like us. Now, if we doubt that or dismiss that, if we doubt it and say, well, I don't know how it could be. You don't know the things I've done. I have been crooked in my heart. I've been crooked in my business. If we doubt that, that there's forgiveness in Christ, or if we dismiss it and say, well, okay, that's nice. There's forgiveness, but, you know, I didn't steal it much anyway. It wasn't that big of a deal. In either case, then we need to go back to the cross and see what it cost our Lord Jesus because it was for us thieves that Jesus Christ was willing to be robbed. He was robbed of his freedom. He was robbed of his honor and reputation. He was robbed of justice. He was robbed of his friends and fellowship. He was robbed of his clothes. He hangs naked on a cross while they gamble away his clothes. Have you ever seen a poor man than the Lord Jesus hang on the cross? He was infinitely rich, now desperately poor. He's not just a man who's mugged and murdered. But the whole world against him and God laying upon him the curse against our thievery. Psalm 69 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament, along with Psalm 22 and Psalm 110. In Psalm 69, a psalm of David, it portrays to us something of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. It begins like this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there's no standing I've come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is dry. This man is just overwhelmed. He's been pleading with God. He he can hardly speak anymore. He has a hoarse voice. He says, my eyes fail while I wait for my God. His eyes are bloodshot and exhausted and tear-stained. And he's, he's desperate here. He says, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. Without a cause, he's hated. And then it says this, Psalm 69, verse 4, Though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. It's an interesting line, huh? The man is being charged for thievery, for robbing. He's forced to pay back what he didn't take. He must make restitution For bills he did not incur. And it finds fulfillment in Jesus, doesn't it? We are the thieves who did the stealing. We rob God in a certain sense of his honor and glory. We've robbed each other and ourselves of life. And now Christ goes to the cross to be charged with our crime and to be told you must pay back for their thievery. And so Christ does. On the cross, he restores honor to God in a sense. He he vindicates the justice of God, the holiness of God by dying for our sins. And the life that, that we took away, he gave back, reconciling us to God. He underwent the punishment that was our due. 
And in doing this, he breaks the power of sin, right? We're not owned by greed and owned by covetousness. It's not the monster now that controls our life, and throws us off of buildings. But you know what else he did? And this might be the very thing that you need to hear this morning in your life. You know what else Jesus did on the cross? Jesus bore our shame. Thieves are despised. Jesus bore our shame. Now, shame is a stubborn and a difficult one, isn't it? Shame clings to us like tar sticks to our hands, maybe. Can't get it off. But on the cross, Jesus Christ is marched out. Not, you know, in tow, a prisoner in an orange prisoner's garment and shackles. But an even worse version of that from the first century, he's marched out naked and carrying a cross. The ultimate, the ultimate criminals receive the cross. And he's hung among transgressors. He's numbered with them. And he's not only naked but verbally assaulted. And he's spit upon and he's scorned and he's hated He's despised with utter contempt. He is the ashamed one. And what is he doing? He who is the eternal Son of God, the Lord of glory, is taking our shame to himself in order to clothe us with dignity and honor. In February, the school mask mandate for outdoors in Los Angeles County was lifted And one of the teachers discovered that 80% of the kids are still wearing masks outside when it's not required. And so this perplexed him. And he began to ask his 12 to 14-year-old students, 155 of them he had, began to inquire of them why they're wearing masks. And he found that 2% were afraid of getting sick and 5% were afraid of getting grandpa and grandma or their younger siblings sick. And the rest all had answers that he could lump together saying that they were not bothered by the mass now, but instead actually liked the mass. The mass made them feel comfortable. It hid things about their faces they didn't like, covered their insecurities. The teacher was angry and deeply saddened that had come to this, that now kids want to hide their faces. Well, it's interesting and it's heartbreaking, but... You know, if we reflect upon it a bit more deeply, if we reflect upon that a bit more deeply, don't we have to confess that's the feeling that we all have? We want something to hide behind. There are so many things in our lives, and maybe from the past, that if they were drug out here this morning and paraded before us all, we would be embarrassed and deeply ashamed. Maybe it's Sexual sin that often brings shame. Maybe it's our dishonesty. If people knew what we did on our taxes or in our business dealings. Or, or maybe it's next time the, the misspeaking against our neighbor. The kinds of things we've said about people. And where can we hide? You know, the first mask mandate was invented by Adam and Eve, right? In the garden. Fig leaves. Hiding. And what did God do? He refused to leave us there. And what was the solution God had? 
I suspect for many loving teachers in Los Angeles, they in the past months have been trying to convince students to show their faces again and not be ashamed. But you know, that's really the world's answer to, to, to every kind of shame, even appropriate shame for sin. Our world's response is, don't be ashamed. Boast about it. Have a parade and celebrate it. That's the answer. Don't be ashamed. But that's not the answer, is it? There is a shame that comes with sin. What's the answer to it? The answer is to be washed with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be clothed in his righteousness and and be given his name to wear. To be covered in Jesus is to no longer be naked and ashamed, but to be made clean and radiant. And that's what Jesus was doing upon the cross. All the shame heaped upon him. He was was bearing it for us. And he bore it all voluntarily. And this morning we eat and drink at the Lord's Supper and we taste of his goodness. And we're assured that we are not wretches any longer, but we are the children of God and we will shine on the day that Christ comes back. Christ has not merely purchased a covering for us that we can stand before others, but one to stand before God. And not just a covering of righteousness to stand before God, but we're, we're given through Christ a place in the Father's home, a warm welcome. And God's not ashamed to own us as his children. And amazing, as Christ hangs between two criminals on crosses beside him. He says to one of them, today you'll be with me in paradise. True riches. This past week I was on the phone with a brother in the Lord from a long ways away whose wife has chronic illness for many years, profoundly affects their life. And now he himself, he retired and he began to serve in this, this Christian ministry and he was just loving it. And then he was contracted or diagnosed with a disease and he had to give that up. And I, I said to him, before we got into the business, I said, how, how do you guys go on? What, what encourages you and your wife as you deal with chronic sickness? And he talked about the word in the scriptures. And then he said, also, there's this article he often goes back and rereads by Tim Chalice called Getting Older Involves a Lot of Dying. Getting Older Involves a Lot of Dying. And the author, who's, who's not old, but maybe middle-aged, he writes about how, though he's not that old yet, he's already experienced that life is about dying. His, his dreams, what he was going to do, his accomplishments he'd hoped for, he realizes now they'll probably never be. And, and, and what he thought of himself, that he had great gifts and was rather extraordinary. Now he finds out he's rather usual. And so his life is a process of dying and letting go. But he ends by talking about how he finds contentment in the Lord. You know, that's the way it is. If covetousness and gathering for ourselves... Defending our rights and getting and hoarding and keeping and accomplishing, then we'll never find happiness. But here's a thief on the cross. Talk about an ashamed man, right? His whole life is a waste, right? He, he's on a cross. He's being crucified on a Roman cross, this thief. What, what has he done? A rebel, a thief, a robber? And yet, 
he turns away from scorning Jesus to say to the Lord Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I give up everything. I have nothing. And Jesus, does he scold him? Does he scorn him? Does he rebuke him? Jesus, without hesitating, says, Assuredly, I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. The Lord Jesus doesn't just call us away from covetousness. The Lord Jesus says, in me, you have everything. You have eternal life. You have a place in paradise. And that, brothers and sisters, is the joy that sets us free from greed and covetousness. What about the man crying out, Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. One writer says there are many people who want Jesus to solve their problems, but not to change their hearts. How do you come this morning? How do you come to the Lord's table? How do you stand before your Savior? Are you asking him just to fix the problems, to get the thieves out of your life and to give you your stuff? Are you saying to him, Lord, remember me as you come into paradise. Lord, all I need is eternal life. All I need is fellowship with God. All I need is my guilt and my shame taken away and to be clothed and fit for communion with God. That's life. That's life. And that's the true meaning of the Eighth Commandment. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus who gets to the heart of the matter and the heart of our hearts. And we thank you that he has been pleased to stay there, to transform our hearts and to redeem us. Bless us, we pray in Christ today, and give us true riches through him. Amen. It's our joy to turn to the Lord's table.